Have you ever done this? Have you ever messed up in your life? Have you ever backed into conflict that you never intended to get into? Hey, welcome to Scottsdale Bible Church. Hi. Are you new here? I am. My husband's dropping the kids off. Kids? Uh, how many kids do you have? I actually have two. Two kids? Oh, that's great. Well, soon to be three. Um, I I'm not pregnant. Oh. You'll want to make sure that never happens again. Hi, welcome to Scottsdale Hi, Bible nice Church. nice to meet you. Yeah, are you new here? We are. My husband's actually dropping our kids off at childcare right now. Oh, really? How many kids do you have? We have three right now, and... Are you hungry? Yeah, you could say that. A lot of cravings. Lesson learned. Hey, my name is Neil Montgomery, and I'm a conflict survivor. Uh, we're going to start a series today on conflict, and uh, it's going to be an awesome ride for the next five or six weeks here at our church. And here's why I know that, because there's not one of us here today that doesn't have conflict in our lives at times, or maybe even right now. And it's going to be an awesome ride, because Jesus is going to be the one to show us how specifically to handle conflict through his modeling as well as through his teaching. And so these are not Jamie Rasmussen's thoughts on conflict. That would be pathetic. This is Jesus teaching us about how to deal with conflict. So with that said, let's bow and let's dive right in. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in this city, in this world, uh, when it comes to building your kingdom in the hearts and minds of your people and even the people you continue to bring into your kingdom as you reveal Jesus to lost ones who need to know him. Lord, we thank you for the addition of Mountain Valley as a, uh, now a part of Scottsdale Bible Church, and we're so grateful for the unity that you've given us in Christ with that wonderful congregation. And I pray, God, that as we turn to your word now, that you might give us wisdom and insight, help us understand rightly what you have revealed to us, and Lord, our commitment back is that we will live out that which we know to be true. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, Amen. So there's a story told of an elderly couple who lived together in a nursing home, and though they had been married for 60 years, their relationship had been one of constant arguments, disagreements, and even shouting contests. Some of you know people like this. And the fights never stopped. In fact, even in the nursing home, they would argue from sunup until sundown, and it finally became so bad that the nursing home threatened to throw them out if they didn't change their ways. But even then, this couple could not agree what to do. So finally, the wife said to the husband, I'll tell you what, Joe, let's do this. Let's pray that one of us dies and goes to be with the Lord. And after the funeral's over, I'll go live with my sister. <laughs> you know, here is one thing that we know about life, and that is that life is filled with conflict. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. And sometimes, tell me if this isn't true, life is filled, and this is what we need to talk about today, with unavoidable conflict. It really is. That's what I need you to dial into today, that there is going to be a lot of times in life when you and I are walking down the road just doing our normal everyday thing, quite frankly, very innocent, and conflict is going to come our way. And what the Bible is going to teach us this morning is that there's many times where conflict is actually an unavoidable reality uh, in this fallen world of ours. And, and, and that's 
It's such an important thing for us to start on as we start this series because I think there's a lot of us here today, tell me if this isn't true, that tend to think that if we could just get it right, if we could just master a few techniques, read a few books, live a little bit better, then we wouldn't have conflict in our lives. And it's just not true. You can be as good as Mother Teresa, as holy as Billy Graham, and the reality is is that God promises that you're still going to have conflict this side of heaven in this fallen world. And the reason that we know that that is true is because of Jesus, that one of the first things that Jesus teaches us about conflict is that he had it, and because he had it, we're going to have it. Think about the logic of that. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He always responded to every single scenario when he was on this earth with grace and truth. Maybe look at it this way. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to get it right, and yet he had conflict. And not just a little conflict, but a lot of conflict. In fact, Jesus had so much conflict just early on in his ministry that Mark, in his gospel, devotes an entire chapter, imagine that, an entire chapter to talking about Jesus' conflict that he had with those around him. And so get this, chapter 2 in Mark, the chapter that we're going to look at over the next few weeks here at Scottsdale Bible, and even a little bit into chapter 3, a full 34 verses is all about conflict. We just finished chapter 1 of Mark here. We took eight weeks to go through it, and it was a glorious look at all the different avenues that we can take to know Jesus and even introduce Jesus to other people. It's all about introductions and avenues. But it's interesting, as we now turn the page into chapter 2, we're going to turn the page into the storm, into conflict that Jesus has now with those around him. And there's a lot that you and I can learn from it. And yet one of the first things that we're going to learn. And this is point one on your outline right now. Let's just dive right in for those of you who take notes. Point one is this, and that is that the best intentions combined with the most altruistic results can still breed conflict. In other words, you can have the greatest intentions in the world this side of heaven, and you can have an an amazing life that has wonderful results attached to it. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us, even given that scenario, uh, you're still going to have conflict in life. And this is clearly the way that Mark chapter 2 begins. Let me fill you in on what's happening here in the context as we turn into chapter 2. It starts out pretty normal and mundane. It's very early on in Jesus' public ministry. He's been spending a few days, which is chapter 1, teaching and healing. And you might remember from our last series that the crowds are flocking to Jesus. As chapter 1 closes and chapter 2 begins, you might remember the crowds were so thick around him. They thought Jesus was so wonderful and great that he actually had to leave the little town of Capernaum and get out to the countryside where he could have some breathing space. And that's how chapter 1 ends. And as we move into chapter 2, Jesus is now heading back into town, into Capernaum in northern Galilee. And he's probably heading to where he was before, and that is Peter's house, because it says that he went to a house. And when Jesus gets to this house, get this, the crowds once again are so thick. There's so many that come to this home where Jesus is wanting their miracle and wanting to be taught by him that it's standing room only. 
And even the doorway is blocked as Jesus begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to try to picture that scenario. Picture Jesus at a modest home and that he's teaching there, say, in the living room. And there is so many crowds there that nobody could possibly get in. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door, and he, Jesus, was speaking the word to them. And at this point, we kind of veer from the mundane. That's a pretty normal everyday scene for Jesus. But in the next scene, what happens here is that there are a group of people who have a paralyzed friend. Never tells us how he got paralyzed. It could have been from birth. It could have been from an accident. But he was paralyzed and couldn't walk. And they wanted to get this guy in front of Jesus. The only problem was is the crowds. And you couldn't get through the door. And they didn't have wheelchairs back then like we do today. So they put this guy on a mat. You can picture that, kind of a a makeshift mat. And they lift him up on the mat. They walk around to the side of the house. Palestinian homes would have had stone staircases going up to the roof. They go up to the roof. The roof would have certainly been made of mud and thatch over wood cross beams. You can picture that. They dig a hole in this roof, what one commentator calls a major demolition job. And as the dirt is falling on Jesus and the people in the house, they lower this guy right in front of Jesus to basically say, here's somebody that needs healed. Here's somebody that needs help. Here's somebody you should minister to. Now, look at what happens next in verse 5. This is where it heats up. It says in verse 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is weird, if not strange. We get the first part, but the second part is, is kind of like what? I mean, the first part where it says Jesus seeing their faith, we understand. It would take a lot of faith uh, to, to, to go up to the side of the house and lower a guy in and do all that work just to get him in front of Jesus, knowing that if they did, Jesus could do something for him. So when it says that Jesus saw their faith, we understand that. But what does it mean when it says that he forgave him? He said, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's not what the guy was looking for, was it? The guy was looking for a healing. The guy was looking to walk again. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What's that about? I'm telling you, it's profound stuff going on here. And here's what almost every commentator, every Bible expert, every pastor worth his or her weight in gold would tell you. And that is that what Jesus is doing here in this scene is that he's letting this man know that his deepest and most vexing problem is not paralysis. It's a sin problem that separates him from God. Your most vexing problem is not your troubled marriage, your messed up finances, your emotions that are going haywire, or your rebellious kid, though we think those are our biggest problems. No, our biggest problem, the Bible tells us, is a sin problem that we have from birth, this stubborn internal selfishness that wants to do life our way and is going to do life our way that keeps us from God and even keeps us from having great relationships with others. The Bible says that's our sin problem. And what Jesus is doing with this man here before he's going to do anything else is dealing with the core of the issue. And he says to him, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, because Jesus is the Son of God, because he's God come in the flesh, he can forgive sins. That's going to be a huge theme of the Gospels. And then it's interesting, only then in verse 11, six verses later than here, does Jesus heal this man of his paralysis. And that's the story that's before us here. And so don't miss, Jesus does two incredibly good things here. He brings eternal forgiveness to this man, the forgiveness that every human being needs and inwardly longs for so that we can have a personal relationship with God without hindrance and without barriers. And then he's going to heal this man of his temporal condition that obviously has made life rather difficult and uncomfortable. Jesus forgives him and heals him. Hang on to that. And then Jesus also is going to teach the crowds more about the kingdom of God, which is obviously a good thing. Here's my point. Folks, you can't get better intentions with more altruistic results than what Jesus has done here. You can't. I mean, no offense, but even on your best day, when you are writing checks to the Salvation Army, helping your elderly neighbor, serving in a soup kitchen, being really nice at work, going on a mission trip, say, to West Africa, we know what that would be about. So even on your best day, I'm telling you, you don't light a candle to the Son of God forgiving somebody eternally of all of his sin and then healing him of his temporal disease. Amen? And this is why you and I are not called the Son of God, God come in the flesh, because we could never do what Jesus does here. This is the model of best intentions with amazing results, and we see it with Jesus here. And the reason that this is so important is because what's going to happen next is going to blow your mind. With these amazing intentions and these amazing results, Jesus is about to enter in smack dab into the middle of conflict. And this conflict is going to be the beginning of three very difficult years for Jesus in which he is going to be lied to, manipulated, attacked, eventually physically assaulted as he goes to the cross in the midst of the most altruistic results mixed with the best intentions. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7 and you'll see what I mean. Right after Jesus says this man's sins are forgiven, right before he's about to heal him, it says, but there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? I put it in yellow there for you on the, uh, your screens. Uh, reasoning within their hearts. That, that's a very, very potent phrase. I, I chose the New American Standard Bible translation this time instead of the ESV because I think the ESV says questioning in their hearts. Reasoning is a better translation here. What these guys are doing is what human beings do all the time. They're basically thinking their own thoughts about God, which is what our world does. I was talking to a friend the other day who doesn't know the Lord, and I was asking him about spiritual things, and man, he just unloaded on me all these thoughts about God. And as somebody who's read the Bible, I was thinking to myself as he was unloading me all his personal theology on God, I thought, wrong, 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 wrong. But I can relate to that because that's how I spent the first 18 years of my life. I had all these thoughts about God, you know, that just came to me, and I thought, well, that must be true about God, but they were, they were wrong. And, and these guys are reasoning that way in their hearts, and, and they're saying Jesus is blaspheming. Now, what's blasphemy? 
Well, blasphemy in this context simply means that you're putting yourself on par with God. You're making yourself out to be God because Jesus was forgiving this man of his eternal sin before God. And this would denigrate the name of God. It would pretend to be God, and they didn't buy it. And so through reasoning in their hearts, they said he's a liar, and he's blaspheming before God. It's C.S. Lewis's old argument. Remember this, Lord, liar, or lunatic, that when you look at Jesus and the things that he did and the things that he said, he either is who he claims to be, God come in the flesh, able to forgive people of their sin, or a deranged person who should be locked up, or a liar who should be shut up. And they're opting for door number three here. And they're saying that Jesus is a liar, and he's blaspheming against God. And do you guys remember what the penalty is in the Old Testament for blasphemy? It was death, death by stoning, which is why in John chapter 8, another place where Jesus makes a claim to be God, they pick up stones in order to kill him, but in that context, he slips away. But they rightly understood what he was saying, and yet they didn't believe him. And as I said, here in Mark 2, this conflict that Jesus now has entered into is going to follow him all the way to the cross. And for our purposes this morning, what I need you to see more than anything else, because this is so relevant to you and me, is that this conflict that Jesus now just entered into was amidst the most absolute best intentions. I mean, he set out to teach, heal, and forgive. Who doesn't want that? And it happened amidst the most altruistic results. I mean, results that were other-focused, selfless, benefiting another. And all I can say is that if it can happen to Jesus, it can and will happen to you and me. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, that a servant is no greater than his master. And that if they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to us. He warned us about this. And he said, if you're going to become a follower of me, you're going to go down my pathway. And the things that happen to me are going to happen to you. And folks, I can't tell you how many times I have innocently, unknowingly, even naively walked into a situation thinking I'm doing fine, only to be blindsided by conflict within just minutes. Can you relate? There's times where I I go into a situation and I know my heart is good, I know my motives are pure, I know there can be good results, and conflict just ensues out of nowhere. I I, mean, there's times where I go to share my faith sensitively and lovingly with a friend and boom, leave me alone. Who do you think you are? You Christians are so opinionated. I'm like, whoa, that's actually me being sensitive. I've been insensitive. That, That wasn't that. I mean, I want to say that's the best I got. I mean, there's times where I, I, have you ever had this happen? You give a little loving advice to a hurting family member or coworker, and the response, you know, you're not as smart as you think you are. Well, you get no argument from me there, but that's the best I got. I mean, there are so many situations that I walk into every day, and I'm not making myself to sound like an angel. I mean, sometimes they're my fault, but What blows me away is that when they're not my fault, and you relate to this too, when you're not looking for it, and all of a sudden conflict comes, you go, what is that about? Well, Jesus already taught us that there are times in this fallen world, and maybe even many times for some of us, where conflict is an unavoidable reality. And one of the first things we need to learn about it 
is that it's going to be here, and it's going to be here for good in a fallen world until Jesus comes back. And we need to get our expectations right. This illustration, I think, will be helpful for you. It was said that when they were building what has come to be known as the Chunnel, you can look up here on your screens at the pictures here, a huge 31-mile underground tunnel that connects England with France, spanning the English Channel, that when they were building this, a lot of conflict occurred. It was a huge project using 11 tunnel-boring machines called TBMs, The British and the French worked collaboratively for seven years, committing over 13,000 workers and displacing over 10 million cubic yards or meters of dirt. I mean, it was just a huge project that now has created great results. It was finished in the mid-90s for people on both sides of the channel. And yet during this project that has blessed so many, there were times where people thought it was never going to get finished because of all the conflict. And the biggest problem they didn't foresee was what the French would eventually call bicephale, bicephale, which means two-headed. In short, to make it equal, they hired two firms to complete this project, one from the French side, see where this is going, and one from the British side. One would be in charge of finance and operations, and the other would be in charge of the actual construction. And yet neither side was given ultimate authority. It was very much two-headed by Cephalé. And yet you can imagine that the French and the British, they had two very different ways of doing things, and it created a lot of conflict. In fact, this will help you. Listen to how one author puts it. He says, and I quote, "...the problems were primarily from a lack of shared standards." The two countries had a different word for everything. The French had their own accounting system. So did the English. The French ran on 380 volts and the British ran on 420. Instruction manuals had to be bilingual. There were even two different standards used to measure sea level. And so from these vastly different perspectives, really two different sets of standards, there was plenty of arguments, loads of tension, loads of leadership problems, and numerous times where they wondered if this thing could ever really get built. And the fascinating thing that most people note in hindsight is it wasn't that one side was wrong and the other side was right. Now, it really just had to do with two very different perspectives, two different value systems that they were trying to bring together. So you got the best intentions combined with what's going to be wonderful results breeding a lot of conflict. And here's my point. Some of your lives right now, tell me if this isn't true, are like building the channel. I mean, you're just trying to connect with somebody in your world, connect with them meaningfully on the other side, but for various reasons, probably due to different standards and different perspectives, different standards of relating, different standards of communicating, different standards of parenting, different standards of even spiritual conviction, but different standards nonetheless, there's conflict. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong and they're right, and sometimes, get this, neither one is right or wrong. Sometimes it just is. And the reality is, is that you're going to have conflict. And what blows me away most about this, and Jesus is going to show us this as well in the coming weeks, is that sometimes that conflict is going to be very close to home. Sometimes it's going to be with those that we love 
the most, right? It is. I love how St. Augustine said it years ago. He said, this is kind of funny, he said, there are many sheep without and many wolves within. He turned it around, by the way. That's not the way that's supposed to go. And yet many times that is the way it is. It's friendly fire. Sometimes we get shot by those closest to us, those who are supposed to be on our side. Conflict in a fallen world is many times unavoidable. I mean, it's just going to happen. Jesus shows us this clearly in this first scene here. Now, once we come to grips with this, the obvious question that you and I need to deal with, and we're going to do this, and then we're going to go to our elder fund offering, is what do we do with all of this? I mean, how do we respond and handle conflict when yours and mine's intentions are good, when the results clearly benefit others, and yet it still comes? What are we to do with all of this? And though this series in Mark chapter 2 is going to teach us many practical things like how to handle conflict when you're going against the grain and how to handle conflict when it directly has to do with Jesus and how to handle conflict when it's over a gray issue, not a black and white issue, I want to leave you with one thought, just one thought this morning that acts as kind of an overriding principle for this series that you and I need to keep in mind. And I'm going to warn you right now, this involves the kicking in of your faith. This thought I'm going to share with you right now that I will show you comes right from the Scriptures involves you and me believing it, trusting it, and leaning our weight upon it if we're ever going to get any mileage out of it. And here it is. And that is that we need to believe that God is in the storm and that He will accomplish His purposes in and through it all. Let me repeat that because many Christians today act like they don't believe this. When you have conflict... You need, the first thing you need to do is believe that God is in the storm. Not outside of it, not looking down upon it. He is in it with you and that he has a purpose and a plan as you trust him in and through it. And you're saying, really? And I would say, really? Uh, Look at what it goes on to happen here, say, in verses 8 through 12. After Jesus has forgiven this paralyzed man, and after the religious leaders get all bent out of shape about Jesus claiming to be God and forgive sin, look at what happens next in verses 8 through 12. This is very instructive. It says, and immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your pallet and walk? But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all. And so they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So, this is very confusing to many people. This is kind of a, a, a kind of a zigzag road going on in these few verses here. So follow along what's happening here, because at the end of it, it's life-changing. Jesus begins here by knowing what they are thinking, which, by the way, I would suggest to you is a sure sign that he is more than just a human being, right? He's reading thoughts. Many people don't really do that. Then he does something. Some of you think you do, but you don't. And, and then he does something that in, at, at first glance has confused some people over the years, but when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. He asks, which is easier to do? To forgive eternal sins that separate one from God or to heal a temporal, physical ailment? What's the answer to that? Which is easier to do? 
obviously, it's easier to heal. It's harder to forgive eternal sin. A physical ailment is a this side of heaven, temporal kind of thing. And if you're the Lord of creation, if you're the Lord of all bodies as Jesus is, then that's an easy thing to do. To forgive of an eternal sin against Almighty God who cannot even be in the presence of sin ever is going to take something even much more than a mere miracle. That is Jesus' point. He's basically saying, I've done the harder, more difficult thing first for this guy. The second thing will be child's play. And just so that everybody's clear on who they're dealing with, Jesus then says, well, I will show you now why I have the authority to forgive sins. And he heals the man, thus showing that indeed he is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of our bodies. And don't miss, because this is the mountaintop, the result of this interaction. This is what's going to teach us about conflict. Look again at verse 12. It says, and he, the healed man, rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed, now here it is, and were glorifying God, saying we've never seen anything like that. In order to get this, you only need to focus on two words, glorifying God. That word glory is the Greek word doxazo. It's used all the time in the New Testament, almost always in light of God. It only occurs once here in the Gospel of Mark. And it means to bring honor to someone, to render esteem, to magnify who someone is. It really, you can understand the word glory by just picturing a magnifying glass. I bring glory to someone or something or anything when I put a magnifying glass up to it and, and I blow up who or what it is. That, that puts the attention on that. It gives glory to that situation. That's what this word means here. And in light of God in this context, it simply means that this seeking crowd, now don't miss this, all of a sudden had their sights turned to God. And they were in awe thinking about who he really is and what he could do even in their lives. Let that sink in a moment, church. Human conflict brought glory to God and his purposes on planet earth were in full force even in and through this conflict. Or to put it another way, Jesus took a hit of conflict here that he wasn't looking for, and yet nevertheless, a man was forgiven, a man was healed, people were taught some amazing things about God, and the magnifying glass was put upon God so that all could see it. That was the result of this conflict scenario. And the point is clear for you and me. Many times in this fallen world, as we've already established, you and I are going to experience conflict. And what you need to see today, and I know this is hard for some of you, is that God allowed it. (laughs) I I mean, he did. He's in control of everything. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. He allowed it to come into your life. And what he wants you to know today is that the reason he allowed it is that there's a good chance he's up to something bigger, more glorifying, more amazing in his economy and in your life. And that as you hang in there with him and trust him and put your full weight upon him, you very well might see it. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And we must, we must 
always remember this because I'm telling you, this point is a faith builder and it helps us make sense of conflict when we have it. You know, I, I relate to you guys in a lot of ways uh, as a pastor. I, I think it's one of my strengths. I'm very aware of my humanness or my fallenness, and so I relate to you guys because you guys are really human and fallen as well. And so I, I have no problem. Really. But I got to tell you, with conflict, I, I especially relate to you because you guys all know this. Pastors have conflict just like everybody else. In fact, maybe even more because you know, people see us as soft and tender people. <laughs> what do they know? And, and so they, they come to us, and they don't mind picking a fight or, or, or putting their stuff on us. And, and so pastors just have a lot of, of conflict. Uh, years ago, back in the 18th century and the 19th century, there was a pastor in England by the name of Charles Simeon. He has a very, very fascinating story. You'll see a picture of him here. Simeon graduated from Cambridge at the age of 23, and he had not even been ordained to the ministry yet. He was a deacon only, and he had done only a summer internship as a part of his training, but because his father had connections in the Anglican church, he was appointed right out of seminary as the vicar of Trinity Church in Cambridge in 1782. Let that sink in a moment. A 23-year-old seminary student getting a plush senior pastor job because his dad had connections in a premier church in a premier academic city. And as you can imagine, the congregation at Trinity Church was not happy. There was an assistant pastor there, a man by the name of Mr. Hammond, and they wanted him to be his pastor. And as churches are so good at doing, they made this very known to Charles Simeon. In fact, they made it so known in clear and unambiguous terms that Simeon initially asked the bishop to not place him there, but the bishop said, nope, it's a done deal, and even if you leave, Mr. Hammond isn't getting the job, so you might as well stay. And that's what Charles Simeon tried to do. But it didn't work. Within a few months of his arrival, the congregation did something that you couldn't do today, but you could do back then. They boycotted the Sunday morning services. And you're saying, well, you can do that today. Well, they had more teeth back then. Some of you might remember the old time days. Back about, it probably disappeared maybe 50 or 60 years ago, maybe even more. But back at least 100 years ago in traditional church, uh, you had pews. But in many churches, there were doors on the pews. Some of you have seen those. You go into old churches. And the reason they had doors there is because many families, many people owned their own pew. You tithed, you gave, and so you were assigned a pew, and you were even given a key to your pew. Some of you act like that still is in existence today, <laughs> which is maybe for another sermon, but, but that, they had a formal system back then for how that worked. And so what they did in Charles Simeon's day, and I get this, is that they all, in, in uniform way, they locked their pew doors on Sunday morning, and they all left. And so they wouldn't let any visitor or anybody else sit in their pew, but they weren't going to sit in it. And so as a result of this, for 10 years, Charles Simeon preached many times to an almost empty church. There were some times where he tried to set up chairs in the aisles or in the back so that those visiting could, could have a seat. But the deacons took the chairs and threw them out into the courtyard so that there would be no seats in this church. And again, this pew-locking issue went on for a full 10 years up until 1792. 
As if this were not enough, the congregation did another thing to communicate their, their disappointment to this pastor. Uh, like many churches today, they had a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. But as we've already established, they couldn't choose who could preach to them on Sunday morning. They could just boycott it. But in the Anglican tradition back then, they could choose which pastor to preach Sunday night. And so for five years, they never chose Charles Simeon. They chose Mr. Hammond. So Simeon couldn't preach at his own Sunday night service. And then after Hammond left, after five years, for the next seven years, they chose a pastor from outside his church so that he couldn't preach on Sunday night. And so what Simeon did, because he didn't know what else to do, is that on Sunday nights he would go up to Cambridge and he'd find young men and women who were interested in spiritual things, some of them may be interested even in the ministry, and he would teach them. He developed his own class on Sunday nights at Cambridge, so it would have maybe 40, sometimes even 60 people in this. And it was a really difficult road for Charles Simeon. In fact, at one point in writing a letter to his friend, this is in his biography, he says, and I quote, I used to sail in the Pacific, but now I'm learning to navigate the Red Sea that is full of shoals and rocks. And it was a difficult road for this guy. Now, some of you thinking right now, why didn't you just move on? Why didn't you just tell this congregation to go to heaven and go find another church or something like that? <laughs> Pastors never say the other thing. We do tell sometimes people to go to heaven. And the reason is, is because, and some of you will remember these days, you even long for these days, is that there are two things that Simeon writes about why he didn't move on. One is that a commitment is a commitment. Amen? When you make a commitment, you don't shy away from it easily. And these were the days where you just didn't hop to another church. But even more so, the bishop is the one who appoints people, and the bishop said, you're staying. And so for him to leave this church, he would have had to get out of the Anglican priesthood, and he didn't feel called to do this. So he stayed in the midst of the conflict, gutting it out and trusting that God must have something in this. As you can imagine, because time does heal all things, the dust did finally settle. Some of the old guard eventually died off. There's an old saying in my circles that many churches are about 20 funerals away from revival. And in this particular situation... <laughs> That was true. I'm not saying that it's true of our church, mind you. And get this, by 1816, 1816, 31 years into his pastorate, he would write in his memoirs that peace has finally come to Trinity Church. 31 years. Charles Simeon would go on to stay at Trinity Church until his death at the age of 77. Gosh, pastored this congregation for 54 years. At his death, someone did the research and realized that during his 54 years at Trinity, that of the undergraduates and graduates that he trained, remember when he would go to Cambridge on Sunday nights? Now get this, out of those people during that 10 to 15 year period, some 1,100 of them became full-time parish ministers, chaplains, or missionaries. 1,100 people went to the ministry because he couldn't preach at his church on Sunday evening, and he had to go up to Cambridge to work with young students. Folks, don't ever tell me that God is not in the storm. Even your storm, even my storm, don't ever tell me that he's not up to something. Even in difficult circumstances where we think he can't be doing anything, he is. I love how one Christian writer said it years ago, this is good, uh, she said, don't say that person bothers me. Rather, think 
that person sanctifies me. I like that. Don't say that person bothers me, but think that person sanctifies me. Why? Because God is God, and he's up to something in your life because he loves you. And in Jesus, his grace is upon you. And so even though conflict is an unavoidable reality in this fallen world, you and I take heart because we know that God is in the storm, and we trust and follow him to accomplish his purposes, his glory in and through us. You know, in this series, we're going to be looking at a lot of good and practical things that the Bible will teach us about conflict. I think you're going to find it helpful. But if we're not careful, we're apt to forget two things that we don't want to forget today. The first is that conflict is going to happen. Learn to make friends with that point, because <laughs> it will help you along the way. You won't be blindsided and surprised. And then secondly, when it happens, embrace the one who loves you, because he's in the storm with you, and he has a purpose and plan as you follow him through the tunnel of chaos. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the teaching of your word that as Jesus models and demonstrates for us this life of conflict that we all experience, that, God, we have full confidence that you will be glorified in it as we trust you. And so, Lord, that's all that some of us need to hear this morning. We, we're in a spot right now where we're like building the channel, and we're just, conflict is everywhere. But we trust you. We know you're in the storm. And, and we know, Lord, that like Charles Simeon, that, that, that someday we might look back and say, only God, only God could do something like that. So, God, give us that kind of faith and that trust in the midst of the storm. God, I pray for the weeks ahead that as we unpack further scenarios on conflict that Jesus is going to show us, that, God, you might make us people who are good at navigating <laughs> the shoals and the rocks of the Red Sea and the difficulties that conflict can bring into our lives. Help us, Lord, become better at that, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we all say together, amen. We saved a little bit of time in the end here for some extended worship. Matthew is a great, great worship leader here at our church. So we're going to take up our elders' fund offering, and we're going to sing two songs during this. So please don't go anywhere now. Our elder fund offering, as you guys know, is an offering we take once a month for those in need. I'm blown away at your guys' generosity because each year we give away over three $350,000 to those in need in our church and community. So please give generously here now. God, receive this offering for that which is intended to go to those in need in our church and God and in our community. And God, I pray too that as we close by lifting our voices to you, that you'd encourage us for the weeks and months and years ahead. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.